Alright, so one more thing to talk about in Conflict of Laws. We are continuing our discussion about traditional approaches, the traditional theory when it came to Conflict of Laws. Last time we talked about torts and characterizations of torts. This time we're going to be talking about contract and the characterization of uh, contracts. The first restatement of conflicts about contracts, there are several sections that are associated with this. Just to list them off for your reference, you can skip forward like 30 seconds if you want to ignore this part. But sections that are relevant is section 7, 311 through 312, 314 through 315, 323, 325 through 326, 332 through 336, 340, 355, 358, 360 through 61, and 372. What these sections are ultimately just saying is that the choice of law state is going to be based on where the contract was formed and where it becomes effective. The sections are going to determine uh, how we know which state is going to be where the contract was formed. Uh, Our cases below are going to talk about telephone calls for acceptance and so on and so forth. We'll get more into that in just a bit. So our first part of the analysis is going to be where was the contract formed if that is an issue, if the characterization of the issue is was there a contract that's formed, was there a person that had capacity to contract, well then we're going to be looking at the formation of the contract. But if there is no question about where the contract was formed, and if this is a breach of contract, and we are looking for somebody who failed to perform, well, then the restatement also answers this question of where performance will be measured. According to the restatement, performance will be measured by the state where the performance is to be completed. You're going to look at which party was actually breaching as well because performance may be actually completed in different states depending on which party was promising to do what. Okay, so our first case here is Poole versus Perkins. This was the situation where a contract is formed and governed in the state where the performance is going to be completed. To determine whose laws are going to apply, the court's going to consider where the contract was formed. To determine where the contract was formed, they're going to look at where the parties intended to form the contract. And I should mention before, this case is actually not an example of following the first restatement because it takes into account this element of intent, uh, which is something that the first restatement does not do because uh, most of the time the first restatement, it's hard to discern where intent is actually going to occur. And courts often don't want to get into that, but this court did in this situation. This court also talked about the place of performance Uh, even though it was a capacity issue of whether or not the contract was formed. It was a really confusing case. I'm actually just not going to talk anymore about it. I I honestly did not really like this case too much. Uh, The second case was Lynn versus Employers uh, Reinsurance Corporation. Uh, This was a situation where uh, the contract is going to be formed in the place where the acceptance is spoken from. Uh, Lynn uh, was a insurance broker, which means that he went and helped insurance companies receive clients. And if he helped an insurance company receive a client, well, then that insurance company would pay him a commission. Well, he helped this insurance company uh, receive a client, 
and he wanted a commission from it. And they got a contract for him together. He traveled to New York. He was from Pennsylvania to discuss this contract. And things weren't finalized in New York, so he went back to uh, Pennsylvania while he was waiting for approval. And then the New York office got approval, gave him a call, but we don't know where the call ended up coming from, and accepted the contract. Now, the conflict in this case is, who's, uh, is this a valid binding contract? Was this contract actually accepted and formed? Because in New York, the statute of fraud says that this needs to be written down. It's all, uh, and... In Pennsylvania, it says that it doesn't need to. So whose laws are we going to apply there? Well, according to the restatement, the contract is going to be formed in the place where the acceptance is spoken from. Now, we don't know where the actual acceptance was spoken from in this situation. We know where it was received. It was received in Pennsylvania. But this could have been spoken from New York. could have been spoken from Kansas, where the headquarters was. could have been spoken from New Jersey, anywhere. We don't know where the party was at the time. And so as a result, uh, since this wasn't found, we're just going to stick with what the forum state was, which this was Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania rule says statute of frauds doesn't apply. So there was a contract that was formed, and that's our biggest takeaway from this case. This rule, uh, the rule of acceptance by telephone or email, is called the dispatch rule. There are some issues that arises from this rule, though. Uh, for example, if a person's acting in a state that is completely unrelated to the contract or the parties, well, then a completely unrelated forum might actually govern the law. And this could happen if the person who is accepting the offer is on vacation or if they're on a business trip, just somewhere. Like, they could even be out of country. Another thing that I do want to mention as well, now that we've finished our characterizations of both torts and contracts, is several cases may have issues of both tort and contract. And so you're ultimately going to have to pick these apart one by one to try and solve the issue. This principle of picking the problem apart issue by issue to answer the tort questions, answer contract questions all separately, is the bricage. I think is how you pronounced it. Uh, But that's the principle. Anyways, that's the traditional theory for contract. We still have a couple more traditional theories to talk about. Next time we'll be talking about divorce and other uh, not not as uh, common uh, traditional theories as well. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't our pre-law materials, and the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice, and with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, 
we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.